morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. But as you're doing that, I'd also ask you to maybe put your bulletin or finger in Genesis uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going to be in both places this morning. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, but we're also going to be spending the majority of our time this morning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. For as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll see what we will be looking at this week and next week, is the relationship between husbands and wives. And so much of what we see in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the relationship between husbands and wives is rooted in what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. And so this morning what we will be doing is going back to the first three chapters so that next week we can have a better understanding of what these verses mean and how they are a reflection of Christ's redemptive work reaching even to our marriages. Now before we begin reading in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, just a reminder of where we are within the text of 1 Peter. As you remember, the Lord has caused us to be born again, the Apostle Peter tells us. That He has renewed who we are and has placed us now within a new nation, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And this new citizenship plays itself out in the way that we live in this world. In particular... Peter is talking about how we are to submit within the different relationships that we find ourselves. We are to submit to the government that we find ourselves under. We are to submit within the economic authority structure that we find ourselves. And here in 1 Peter chapter 3, we will see that we are called to submit within the marriage relationship. So hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us pray. Father God, we come to You now and we ask, O Lord, that You would lead and guide us as we come to this topic of marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. Lord, I pray for 
all who are here. I pray, Lord, for married couples. Lord, as they sit and hear Your Word, whether they are united in their faith or there is a division. Father, we pray for those who are not married, for those who are single, that they might not hear these words and feel as though without marriage they are incomplete. For even our Lord Jesus Christ was not one who had a marriage relationship, but was a complete and perfect human being. Father, we pray for those who have broken marriages or even have gone through divorce, Lord, that they would see the redeeming Word and see that You, O Lord, will bring redemption even in the greatest brokenness. We pray, Father, that You would send forth Your Spirit and power that we might truly hear and see and understand and do Your Word. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. When April and I got married, the differences between our cultural backgrounds started to become very apparent. Those of you who have heard some of our story know that April lived in the same house in the same small town of Hepzibah, Georgia, for 17 and a half of her 18 first years. She grew up with cotton fields, dirt roads, and saying the letter S as though it had two or maybe three syllables. There is a wonderful tape of her in kindergarten doing her alphabet saying, A-S is wonderful. On the other hand, I grew up mostly out west in Washington State. I moved every few years, but that's mostly where I grew up. And I lived in government-owned military housing. I grew up in apartments in the city and in homes in the Belgian countryside. I grew up with Mount Rainier, Starbucks, and lots and lots of drizzle. I can't really hear it, but April assures me that I say the word flag, bag, and magazine incorrectly. She says I'm supposed to say flag, not flag. But the real differences had more to do with expectations and assumptions that were built into our cultural upbringing. Unstated rules of communication, division of labor, and traditions that created conflict in what we call our two-culture marriage. Now, several years ago, I married a couple with much greater cultural divide. The husband was southern and white, and his wife was Middle Eastern and Palestinian. While they were both Christians, their expectations for everything from communication to cuisine was a potential source of tension. Not because they didn't love and care for each other, but rather because they were dealing with two cultures in one marriage. As we come to our passage this morning in First Peter, what we see is that every married Christian lives in a two-culture marriage. For within every marriage, there is the culture of the flesh and there is the culture of the spirit. There is the culture of this world and there is the culture of the world that is to come. 
And by virtue of our new birth, we are exiles in this world, citizens of a heavenly country, strangers to the culture and customs that define this present reality. However, if married, we have been joined to one who is very much at home in this world. One who often lives according to the patterns of sin and brokenness that define this present order. Now, for some, this cultural divide means that you are married to one who is not a Christian. There is the struggle of what Paul calls being unevenly yoked between husband and wife, one seeking to follow Christ, the other following the world. Two worldviews, two ways of life in one marriage. It creates quite a strain. But this two-culture dynamic is present also in marriages where both spouses have been born again. Where both are seeking to follow Christ. For while we have been born again, our old nature continues to express itself. And so Christians will often act as though they were not Christians. The spirit and the flesh are often at war within. And while we seek to do what is right, often sin is crouching at the door waiting to overtake us. And so men, we will often treat our wives in ways that are more reflective of our old broken nature. And wives, even though you are seeking to follow the Lord, it is easy to fall back into your old habits and ways of treating your spouse. In our passage for this morning, Peter is teaching Christians how this new cultural dynamic of the kingdom is to affect the marriage relationship. He is teaching us how we might live in a two-culture marriage to the glory of God. How a husband or a wife might love their spouse as a Christian even when their spouse acts more like a heathen. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the culture of marriage from three different perspectives. First, the creation of marriage. What is God's intent for this relationship? Second, the corruption of marriage. How has sin affected the marriage relationship? And third, the redemption of marriage. How has the work of Christ changed how we live within our marriage relationships? This week we will look at the first two perspectives, the creation and corruption of marriage, and next week, the redemption of marriage. And what we will see is that though sin has marred God's original design, through the blood of Christ, marriage has been redeemed. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you would like to turn there, I'll be referencing several verses. There we find God's original design for the culture of marriage. Which we will see is a union of two persons based upon their sameness and their difference. That is a union that is rooted in their corresponding natures and complementary roles. The first thing that we see is that the created culture of marriage is aimed at a personal union between one man and one woman. A personal union between one man 
and one woman. By Genesis chapter 2, as we've read through that, you will see several times the Lord looking at His creation and declaring, it is good. But following the creation of man, the Lord God said, in verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. So the Lord created woman to be with the man. And as verse 24 of chapter 2 says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Jesus commenting on this text says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, God's original creation intent for the culture of marriage is that a man and a woman would be personally joined to one another. God's intent for marriage is that there would be a physical, a spiritual, and an emotional bond between two individuals. In such a way that they would no longer be accounted as two separate individuals, but as one inseparable union. In the Canyonlands National Park in Utah, the Colorado and Green Rivers meet. Now the Colorado River, for any of you who have seen it before this point, is red from the high level of iron and the minerals within the river. And as you would expect, the Green River is green. Very good. And for several miles after these two rivers join, the separate streams are visible. You can see the red on one side and the green on the other. They run alongside each other. Even though they have been joined in one canyon, you can see them running separately alongside each other. But eventually these waters begin to mix and what was clearly two becomes one river. And the creation purpose for marriage is like the confluence of two separate rivers in which streams formerly followed their own path but are now joined into one new river. One that is stronger. One that is fuller. Erasing the former banks of division that eventually the water from one source cannot be distinguished from that of the other. A personal union of heart and mind and purpose. This is God's intent for the marriage union. And to accomplish this purpose of union, God created man and woman in very specific ways. Now, first, he created man and woman in corresponding natures. That is, their union is rooted in their being the same. The Genesis account says that the Lord God brought each animal before Adam to see if there was one who was corresponding to him. That there was not a proper corresponding being. So we read in verses 20 through 23 of Genesis chapter 2, if you would like to look there. But for Adam, 
there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see, the fitness of the woman to be in union with the man is grounded in the fact that they have a corresponding nature. As Adam says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two can become one because they share the same physical heritage. First, the woman came from the man, and then from that point on, each man came forth from woman. Man and woman may be joined together as one flesh because they share the same physical nature, fully and equally human. Yet this sameness does not just apply to physical origin, but also to spiritual worth and origin. For Genesis also tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The creation account tells us that both male and female are created in the image of God. There is no hierarchy in our spiritual natures between man and woman. Men are created in the image of God. Women are created in the image of God. And this equality of nature was by design so that there might be a true and deep union between one man and one woman. A union between two who share an equality of worth and personhood. For personal union may be achieved because man and woman have the same nature. Yet while there is a sameness of nature and an equality of personhood, true union could not occur apart from true differences. For God did not create one type of human being. He created two. The human race is binary. There are men and there are women. And this created difference is rooted in the purpose of bringing about a personal union, a one out of two dynamic. And therefore, Genesis teaches us in verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, woman was created to fill the role of a helpmate. To her husband. That is to come alongside her husband in their joint call to be fruitful and multiply, in their joint call to subdue the earth, in their joint call to rule over it. For God designed men and women in such a way that their differences would provide the most fruitful context for procreation and labor and care for creation. And beyond that, God created male and female with differences that would bring about personal union that could not be achieved 
with two of the same. You see, man was created to be head or leader in this relationship. And woman to be the helpmate. Yet only with two joined in one could the purposes of God for mankind be fulfilled. This is God's created culture of marriage. Two becoming one flesh through both the equality of persons and the difference of roles. But what happened? For we have all been around long enough to know that God's intention for marriage culture is not the reality in practice. Why is it that marriage so often becomes the context for the greatest hurts and disappointments of our life? Why does the human race have such a horrible track record in the treatment of women? Why do we currently have such a push to erase the distinction in created roles between man and woman in our culture? Why? Because God's created culture of marriage has been corrupted. It's been corrupted by the entrance of sin. You see, what God created good has been marred by man's rebellion. And just as Genesis 1 and 2 tell us of God's good created culture for marriage, Genesis chapter 3 shows us how the culture of marriage has been corrupted. When God created man, He gave him a command as a test for obedience. The fruit of one tree was restricted from man to reveal if he would choose the path of good or the path of evil. This tree was the dividing point, as it were. The path, the two paths in the woods. Would man choose the good and receive blessing and life? Or would he choose evil and bring about a curse and death? Here is where the knowledge of good and evil would be revealed. And man chose disobedience and right off this disobedience affected the marriage relationship we read in genesis 3 when the lord confronted adam for his rebellion and his sin adam says to god the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree and i ate Right earlier, Adam was all like, oh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But now sin has entered the world and he is distancing himself from his wife. He is making a division. He is saying she needs to be held accountable for sin, not me. No more of this one flesh business. Sure, I was to be the head. Sure, I was supposed to stand up to the temptations of the enemy and in unity with my wife refuse the fruit. But it was her fault because she ate first. And while we are at it, it's your fault because you gave her to me in the first place. This is the corrupted culture of marriage. A disunion between husband and wife. A need to protect self against the potential of being hurt or taken advantage of. For sin makes us focus on ourselves. On our personal desires and goals and fulfillment. And despite our union with our spouse, we continue, because of sin, to identify primarily as two individuals and not as one flesh union of man and woman. 
this disunion caused by sin plays itself out in both aspects of created equality and created differences between man and woman. And so Genesis 3.16 gives us a picture of why it is that there is conflict in marriage. It says, as the Lord says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In this corrupted culture of marriage, the husband will seek to rule over his wife. Despite the Bible's continual upholding of the equality of women before the eyes of God, historically man has denied this equality and treated women as second class. And within the context of marriage, there continues to be a struggle and a division that arises from denying the corresponding nature between men and women. Husbands have sought to bring union between himself and his wife through dominance and force by abusing his God-given role as head as an excuse to demean and rule over his wife. The word translated fit in chapter 2 verse 18 has a sense of standing face to face with. God created woman to stand face to face with man. But sin has corrupted this face to face relationship so that man would seek to rule over his wife and not to have her stand alongside him. The headship that has been given to man is to be one of service and love, not of dominance and demands. And so any marriage culture that is characterized by a husband ruling over his wife is a sin-corrupted culture. It is a playing out of the curse. It is an image of God-denying culture, and ultimately it is a culture that needs redemption. When a husband seeks to rule over his wife. Yet, it is not only the corresponding nature of marriage that is denied in the corrupted culture, but it is also the complementary nature, the differences. Again, in verse 16, the Lord says to the woman, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's important that we understand what is being said about the desire of the woman in relation to her husband. While the ESV translate the phrase as your desire shall be contrary to your husband, the text literally says your desire shall be toward your husband or for your husband. What this phrase means is that sin has corrupted the culture of marriage so that the wife has the desire to co-opt her husband's role. That is, sin leads the woman to deny her role as helpmate and to desire the role of her husband as head. This is what the ESV is seeking to convey with the word contrary. Yet the desire is so mu- not so much contrary as it is covetous. 
There is a covetous desire within the wife to own the role which has been given to her husband as the head. And just as marriages are plagued with men ruling over wives instead of loving them, they are also plagued with wives desiring the headship of their husbands and refusing to submit to them. And no matter how much our current culture is pushing to deny this reality, there is real and true differences between men and women. Again, not differences of worth or personhood, but differences of role and design. And to deny this difference is to deny the value and worth of the image of God reflected in both men and women. It is sin that has corrupted our understanding of the differing roles between men and women. And it is sin that insists that helpmate is a lesser role than head and looks down upon the idea of submission. For it is submission that marks the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how might we say that submission is demeaning if it is the road that the Lord Jesus took? Yet sin is the culture that we have inherited. Sin is the pattern this world has given to us to walk in. And it is sin that must be defeated for this corrupted culture of marriage to give way to a culture that is redeemed. So what is the hope for marriage in a world broken by sin? How can a man and a woman come together and experience the union which they were created to experience? How might the corrupted culture of marriage be redeemed to reflect God's original order? Well, in Genesis 3.15, we are given a hint. We are given a foretaste, a shadow of what is to come. There we read the Lord's curse upon the enemy. He says in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here in these few words, we see the first promise of redemption. The first hint of the gospel. That one will come forth from the line of man, the offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the enemy. A mortal wound will be inflicted upon the enemy, and as such, the effects of his deceit will be undone. This is the first warning shot across the bow of the enemy, declaring that sin will be forgiven and death will be defeated. It is this promise that we will see fulfilled at the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the enemy. It is here that Jesus poured out His blood to cleanse and redeem all that was lost through sin, including God's created design for personal union in marriage. You see, it is here, through the work of Christ, through the blood of the cross, that we must come to 1 Peter chapter 3 and understand what He is laying out for us. 
in His instructions for how husband and wife are to treat each other within the context of a redeemed marriage. Not redeemed by our own ability to change the way that we relate to one another, but redeemed through the work of Christ alone. For the Lord was not content to allow His good creation to be corrupted forever. And therefore, we must look to the cross if we would see marriage that was created good but corrupted by sin, redeemed by the blood of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come to You now. We come to Your Word and we ask, O God, that You would bless the marriages that are represented in this room. That You would bring healing and restoration. That You would bring redemption. Lord, and that You would help each one of us to seek to follow the path that You have given to us. That husbands might love their wives. That wives might submit to their husbands. Father, and that ultimately the work and the power, the redemption of Christ might be shown forth to all the world. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.